Hello. <clears throat> hey, John. Hi, Dan Benjamin. How are you? Well, how are you? Good. I, you know, I don't want to mix up the, the two shows too much that you do. Yeah. But I would like... <laughs> I, only, I only have two, not like you and Merlin who have six each. <laughs> well, you got to make a living somehow. <laughs> but in your, in your latest episode, episode 176... Of the other program. Of the other one. Yeah, Roderick on the Line, the famous other podcast. I will put that in the, our show notes to refer mm-hmm. people to it if they haven't heard it. It's mm-hmm. it's a great, great episode, and I wanted to meet... There's two reasons why I bring it up. Mm-hmm. The first is, uh, I'm so glad <laughs> that the outcome was what it was, but I don't want to say too much about it, but I have to. So, spoiler alert, I'm going to spoil episode 176. Oh, wow. So pause right now if you haven't heard it yet. Pause. Go, go listen to it. Go listen to it and come back. Okay, they're back. Yeah. Uh, I'm so glad you got your stuff back. I mean, I just can't believe it. I'm so glad you got it back. Uh, me too. <laughs> you know, but what I really got back, Dan, was the was some of the feeling of security. Yeah. You know, like I got the passport back and that was the number one thing that I really cared about. And what was astonishing was once I had all the actual stuff back, I was like, oh, yeah, well, I don't, you know, like the Sonos stuff is nice. And, the, you know, I got those pins back, which kind of weren't replaceable, but also didn't really matter. The passport mattered. Yeah, but, it did. But more importantly, like the sense that my house was under siege, that it was vulnerable, that I was vulnerable, that that somebody could just be in my house while I was there. Yeah. And I, I wouldn't, I mean, I didn't know about it. Like it, it, it plagued me for months. And, uh, and now that's just like, you know, all 90, that has been lifted. Yeah. 94% of it. There's still that thing of like, that guy did get into my house once. Yeah. And, you know, and it was just down to the luck of the Renton Police Department that he suffered any consequences. Mm-hmm. It's amazing. It's an ama- it's an amazing story with lots of little twists. Mm-hmm. I, I actually, a friend of mine, uh, this was in in Orlando when we lived there. He was he was in like a tiny little studio apartment, and somebody broke into it. I mean, it was like a one room thing. While he was asleep, they broke in and took stuff like his wallet out of his jeans and his bike from wall, like feet away from where he slept. So, oh. uh, I mean, talk about messing with you, but your situation was just, oh. Yeah, well, you know, uh. over, the, over the years, I've been robbed a lot of times um, in the sense that I was sleeping outside and I woke up and my shit was gone. Right. Or... Uh, or variously woke up with somebody standing over me in the process of stealing my shit, trying to figure out how to get the, how to get the stuff that was actually on my person. Oh man. Off of me. And then other times being robbed where, but the sanctity of your home. I mean, there's something just one time in 1993, somebody came into my house while I was sleeping and stole a guitar out of my living room, my guitar. But I was, high and drunk and on pills and left my guitar in the living room in a in a janky house where i lived and 
the list of people who could have stolen it, uh, it, it, even if you just eliminate all of the scumbags who just were out in the backyard peering in the window, like just on the list of my friends that could have stolen it was too many people to go around and confront them all individually. <laughs> uh, but that was a long time ago and I had it coming. And when the cop arrived to invest, I, so I called the police because of course, no matter how uh, far off the grid you're living, when somebody steals your guitar, you just instinctively call the police. Yeah. Even though I was completely in a fuck the police mode at the time. <laughs> and what's funny is that that experience caused me to reflect on my fuck the police mentality because I was like, you know what? I, the fact that I still maintain the idea of recourse to the law when I am personally violated right. means that I cannot maintain this particular anti-government stance in good conscience but so i called the police and i was like there's an existential crisis for you i can imagine there was i was just like whoa (laughs) whoa i got robbed and i'm just i'm on the phone to the police in two minutes and last night i was spouting some fucking enormous strain of bullshit (laughs) about the government and blah blah and i wasn't at the time i didn't even have an id i felt like having id this is way after deciding not to have a bank account or insurance or a car or any of that, because I was a free man. I didn't even, I did not have government identification because I believed that it, in, it infringed upon my, 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 uh, what is the term that the, the free, those kooks that live out in the West and believe they are, um, Free citizens of, of some. I know that, what you're talking about. Is there a yeah. term for that? There's a term that they say that's you know it's not patriot. It's um, it's something like not autonomous. The, uh, the the name will come to me, and I'm sure some of our listeners are shouting it yes. at their computers right now. But <laughs> but I'm not. I, I, I wasn't part of a subculture, but I did feel like I had I had unlocked the secret of being like a free guy, which was no. They didn't. They at the they could not identify me at the time. Right. But boy, I was on the phone to them right away. When I needed my <laughs> guitar investigated. Right. And I, I had a serious long conversation with myself after that that produced sort of the path that I'm on now. But I called the cops and then <laughs> what, sat What down. is the name of the path that you're on the now? The path that I'm on now? Yeah. Well, that's a good question. Somebody <laughs> the other day wrote me a thing and they said, would you describe yourself as a conservative, not in the contemporary sense, but in the Rousseauian sense? (laughs) And I was like, interesting. No, I wouldn't. I didn't, I didn't actually reply to the person, but I thought about it quite a bit. So no, because I'm Rousseauian in some ways. It's just, you know, life, right? Uh, We all have different orientations. Complicated. But, uh, so I called the cops. I sat down in a chair and immediately, uh, packed an enormous bong load and then <laughs> bong loaded myself, downloaded the contents of the bong into me. <laughs> and then I look up and there's a cop standing in my living room. <laughs> He's just walked in because the front door was open, he, uh, which is how the guitar probably got stolen. <laughs> but he, he walked in, walked up the hall, walked into the living room and I'm there like <clears throat> just the whole and, I, and so I said I looked at him and he looked at me and I was like, boy, you got here fast. <laughs> and he said, you know, don't worry about the pot. 
I'm on the crime investigating squad. I don't give a shit if you're high. <laughs> and I was like, oh, all right. Well, I didn't realize that you guys like divided your responsibilities up <laughs> right. so right. clearly. I mean, you're not a detective. You're, you're here in a cop uniform. But he wasn't on pot duty that day. <laughs> right. So, yeah. So he and of course, they were no help in finding the guitar. They were like, yeah, it's probably long gone by now, bro. <laughs> Smoke it up. <laughs> But uh, anyway, so yeah, I've been robbed a bunch, but this was, you know, this was after I had, as I said to Marilyn, secured my perimeter, not just in the short term, but I felt in the long term. And I felt that psychologically, I had communicated to my entire neighborhood through various means that not only were they not to rob me, Mm -hmm. but they were not even to park across the street from my house with their stereos on. They were not to this do your, the your current neighborhood, my neighborhood, my neighborhood just understood that there's one house in the neighborhood that is occupied by someone who cannot be predictably um, known. And he is also a little crazy. And sometimes he's missing one of his teeth and his hair <laughs> on and sometimes it's sometimes really long. His hair is really long and sometimes it's really short. And every once in a while he runs for public office, but that doesn't stop him sometimes also from walking down the middle of the street in his bathrobe. Right. So uh, pick another house to rob. But I didn't, I apparently didn't communicate that widely enough. But then it turns out that the guy that robbed my house was just some guy from, he's just, he wasn't even from the neighborhood. Right. He was just, just a bad guy who was like a, like a coyote. Uh, like a like a young coyote who had been kicked out of his coyote tribe <laughs> by the you know by the by the lead dog he'd come of age and they kicked him out and he's out just wandering the plains looking for his own it's place like a spirit quest that's right and it turns out his place right now is the Renton <laughs> city jail which is uh, I think where he belongs but then he's going to learn all kinds of bad habits in there i'm not worried about him i'm worried about my, you know, the the security of my compound, and I have a certain amount of that back, but not. It's it's never going to entirely come back. But I can at least stop staring at my neighbors and wondering whether, like, if they they were complicit somehow in somehow, yeah. yeah. Peace of mind is restored at least about Ooh. that. Yeah, Ooh. yeah. I mean, you know, like you, the day you had the tarantula in your garage, I don't know if I would ever sleep comfortably. <laughs> again yeah well like uh you know i i don't really equate that to what you went <laughs> what you went through but i know from other things that have happened to me of that that kind of feeling of like because your house there's something about it that is like you know you you imagine to be a sort of sanctuary in a way and you want it to be safe and you want to feel like the things that you set down in your house are going to stay where you put them generally speaking, you know, and not be removed from your house. And to have that happen, especially while you're in there is just, uh, yeah. that's, that's the creepy part. Like if you had been, if you had just gone on your trip, you yeah, know what right. I mean? And been yeah, gone yeah. and like you come back and like stuff is missing. So it, I almost feel like, uh, like that would still be pretty bad, but that would be better. Uh, that would be that would be bad, but it would be better. You're right. you're exactly right. And the thing is, two nights or two mornings ago, I walked out 
to get in my truck and somebody had been in the truck and they'd rifled through the glove box. And I leave my cars unlocked precisely for this reason, because uh, I don't want somebody to break a windshield or a window to get in and rifle through my glove box, which contains uh, some like vintage atlases, a pair of <laughs> World War II binoculars, and uh, like a like a spork that I that I use. <laughs> the perfect eat. one you're still looking for. <laughs> yeah, but I've got an intermediary spork, <laughs> and I use that to eat like found food. <laughs> so I don't want to I don't want to lose a window. <laughs> In my vintage truck for for that. So I just leave everything unlocked. And if you want to come in in the middle of the night and rummage through my car, you go right ahead. You don't even qualify as a coyote. You are just, you're just a scavenger. You know, you're just some kind of badger who's in the swamp and you're just eating dead birds. And so they rummage through my car and I, you know, I opened up the door and I was like, oh, great. And I had... It wasn't a feeling of violation. It was just a feeling of disgust. Like, uh, there's, there's too much suffering in the world to be, like, really uppity about this. Like, yeah, somebody's going through my car because they want to get high. And they're trying to find something. And a lot of dummies keep guns in their glove box or whatever. I mean, you know, rummaging through cars gets people stuff. Um. I don't like the I don't like the idea that you know that there are just prowlers roaming around in the neighborhood, but that's what you get. They're pro- you, your car will get rummaged through in any neighborhood in any city. There's do no, you feel I'm, Do you feel like your neighborhood is on an upswing, like or a decline, based on? No neighborhood in Seattle is on a decline because times are happening here, yeah. and it's you know the whole the whole scene is kind of like becoming less affordable and more uh, uptight. So it's, it, you know, in general, it is, it's on a, it's on a up, but it's a much slower up because it's, you know, it's, it was built as a working class neighborhood. Mm-hmm. The, the houses are small. They're on big lots, but they're, you know, they're small houses and, and are still affordable and will, will remain affordable. And um, the, the, the neighborhood's absolutely changing. But this neighborhood has changed dozens of times. It was originally a farm community and then it became kind of a... There were some... There were some ca- because it's close to the lake, there were some cabins that were like beach cabins for people that lived in the city and the city's only eight miles from here. But in 1890, that was a long way. Yeah. That was far enough to go to the beach on, you know, to have like a a cabin that you went to on the weekends. Uh, But those have all, those are some of them still there, but a lot of them, I mean, they're there. A lot of the, the ones that had an acre now are just on a small lot and they're surrounded by houses built later. It's very close to Boeing Field, so then it became a, um, you know, during the war, it was, a lot of houses were built for Boeing workers. It was a Catholic Italian neighborhood all the way through the 70s, Italian and Irish. 
And then because of Seattle's sort of racist uh, zoning policies, which existed you know, both on the books and then off the books, uh, it became increasingly the only neighborhood where black middle-class families could own homes. And there was a lot of racial tension in the 70s as middle-class blacks moved into this Irish-Italian neighborhood, a famous dynamic. Irish and Italian Catholics love it when people of different ethnicities move into their neighborhood. And so there was a ton of just like, I mean, I, one of my old, one of my neighbors who has since moved told me that they burned a cross on her lawn. Oh my gosh. In 1976 or something like wow. that. They were the first black family in the neighborhood. They burned a cross on her lawn. And she lived right across the street from me. So then, the, you know, then the neighborhood in the 80s became predominantly black. And at that point, you know, and there were still some Irish and Italian families that held on. And then, you know, the big waves of migration in the late 80s and 90s were all from Asia, from Vietnam, from Cambodia and Laos, and then from Mexico and Central America. So now the neighborhood is absolutely like like completely perfectly diverse. It's uh, by some measurements the most diverse zip code in America because it has equal populations of every conceivable group. There are there are just as many like South Pacific Islanders as there are whites hmm. in 98178. And so it's just like I mean, there. I think maybe fewer Native Americans, just because that's a population that's in under you know threat. But there are more Native Americans even than anywhere else in Seattle. So it's a great, it's a fantastic neighborhood. But it's you know it's they're small houses, and so it's uh, and oh, and also the entire neighborhood infrastructure that existed there once the. Barber shop, the hardware store, the shoe repair guy, the bakery, the butcher. Those were all demolished at a time when, in the 70s, when it was like, well, we're never going to need these things again. I mean, but pre, pre-Walmart, that, that 70s sort of gentrification Urban renewal. Yeah, right, right. Where it was like, let's get all these shabby little barbershops out of here and put enormous parking lots where we can have um, big, you know, we can have big restaurant, you know, or a big, basically a big open space where you can drive here and then put in a Taco Bell and a McDonald's and a... So so the, what, what was formerly the town of Rainier Beach is... 80% destroyed. And so the neighborhood can't, it can't psychologically collect itself because when you want to go to a coffee shop, there's a place called King Donuts, which is owned by a Vietnamese family or Cambodian family. And they make donuts, teriyaki, and it's also a laundromat. And that is kind of the only real like old culture place. Well, they got a few bases covered there. Yeah, so you go in there, you get some you get some coffee in a in a foam cup. You can buy any kind of donut. 
also teriyaki and like yakisoba. And it's a laundromat and you can play. Nobody's playing board games, but there are some like old people playing chess and gossiping. And, you know, it's like there's it's a scene. But then uh, but then nothing. <laughs> if that's the kind of thing you're in. <laughs> yeah. And, and, and that's totally the kind of thing I'm into. And actually, the, the, the restaurant now is being run by the by the daughters and the daughters of the family are the best. They're it's just sassy, no bullshit, because they're dealing with the whole neighborhood all day, and so they just they hear it all. So they just they spin it right back at you. But like, so the neighborhood wants to, even if it wants to be a place where um, there's a sense of community. It's sort of like, well, got to go to the grocery store. Better fire up the jalopy. <laughs> and you can never really build a, you can't build a thing around that. And the, the store closest to me is a little bodega run by a Korean family. And that family very definitely indicates in every way that they don't give a shit about this neighborhood at all. And they are just selling popsicles, cigarettes, 40 ounces and not even JoJo's. They don't even care enough to hook up the JoJo machine. They're just selling sugar crap. And they're right across the, you know, they're kind of at an intersection where a lot of people pass by. And so people jump in there and they buy cigarettes and sugar crap. And the, you know, the guy that, that I think the main guy that runs that store is also the son of the family. And he kind of just stands out in front of his own store smoking cigarettes and looking surly. He doesn't want to be there. And I don't get the sense that his folks want to be there. And so you just feel like, I mean, it's you'd, the danger, of course, is that somebody will buy that place and turn it into a little store that says sells 25 kinds of olives. And then you're like, ah, fuck. That's not what we need either. We don't need like, we don't need a store where you walk in and there's like, 20 different kinds of Washington wines and an olive bar. Right. What we need is a little store that sells cream and JoJo's and cereal and, Whole, you know, like more of a wholesome thing, not just a, our bad habits, but yeah, a the grocery. good habits too. Yeah. A grocery that's run by somebody that understands that being a grocer is a, is an honorable trade. Mm -hmm. And then people can go in there and if they want cigarettes the grocer has them but the grocer also has bananas and this store has no no bananas not even you know you walk into a little place they don't have bananas the easiest of all things to have that you don't need to put them in a bag they're already in a flesh bag so yeah so i'm ho i'm hoping but you know there were a couple of empty lots and construction started on them and I was like, okay, all right, here we go. We're going to, we're building, we're building in Rainier Beach. And they built like a, you know, they built a clinic. Uh. And, and that's like, okay, yeah, the neighborhood needs a clinic, I guess. But that's on a main corner. And that could have been a lot of things. You know, it could have been even a roller skating rink would, <laughs> would build more community. The clinic is just like people drive in, they, they get their prescriptions like, oh, yeah, we need it. We need it. Um, but there's a veterinary hospital. There's, you know, stuff gets built out there, but it still feels like these are things that would be built on a, on abandoned lots in, in a place where still 
we're still considering uh, in terms of car architecture and not foot or bike architecture. <sighs> but, you know, if I... If I really cared, I'd run for public office. Yeah, I mean, dude, you know, right? If you took it really seriously, right? If I cared, I would do something about it. But <laughs> instead, it's just all talk, just complaining, blah blah, fucking blah. Our first sponsor is uh, Foot Cardigan. Foot Cardigan delivers fantastically fantastic socks to your mailbox every month. This is how it works: you get a random pair of amazing socks sent to you. Right to your mailbox. Subscriptions are for men, women, and kids. These things make such great gifts, and they ship them anywhere in the whole world. Options are monthly or three, six, nine, or 12 months prepaid. You pay once. Perfect gift. Nine bucks a month. And these guys have been uh, on Shark Tank, and you're seeing them all around the web because this is a, this is a really cool thing. Go to footcardigan.com slash roadwork. Foot cardigan.com slash roadwork and you'll get 10% off all subscriptions with the code roadwork10 at checkout. So go check them out. Really, really cool. Really great quality stuff. Thank you very much to Foot Cardigan for supporting roadwork. Footcardigan.com slash roadwork. Uh, you implied that you have been... Have you been robbed? Uh, not, I mean, tech, you want to get technical about it. Robbing is like involves breaking into a, into a, a place and stealing from it. Right. Mm, or is what, it just having the other options? There's, there's being burg burgled versus robbed. And I forget what the difference is. Is burglary the one breaking and entering? Mm, that, yeah. I feel like burglary is breaking and entering and robbed is, is like stick them up. Okay, I have not been robbed, but I've been. Well, no. Okay, I don't know. I'll tell you. I had a car stolen. Oh, so I don't know if that's burgled or robbed, right? Okay, or a different. Right. A different. It doesn't. It doesn't feel like being burgled, unless your car was in your kitchen. Right. <laughs> right. No, it wasn't. Okay. Uh, I was in. I was in college, and I was trying to sell my car. So this is probably 91, 92 time period. Cause I wanted to buy, I had my eye on this really cool rust colored, uh, RX seven. It was maybe five or so years old. You know what, Dan, uh, you, you seem like an RX seven driver. I, well, I, I was one. Yeah. 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 If I, if, I but think it's, if I, you know, if I, I think, thought about it, if I thought about it, I would have, I would have said RX seven. Yeah. And it, well, the new ones are completely different. You have to, I'll have to dig up a picture of the one that I had, but these things, they were two door. They had like a kind of a hard top thing that you could, it only took 20, 30 minutes to, to remove it. And you could store it in the back of the car. <laughs> it took 30 minutes to take the hard top off. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, but it had, it wasn't like a full, fully removed. Anyway, I'll, I'll find it was some a, pictures. It was a, it was like a Targa top. <laughs> yes. No, that's exactly what it was like. <laughs> and, uh, and so I, there was one of these I wanted to buy that, the, that this was for sale nearby to my house. And I wanted to sell the car that I had, which was really a, just such a cool, uh, a cool vehicle. It was the Honda Civic Wagon. A bright blue Honda Civic wagon, the car I'd had since high school. 
And uh, I'm, I'm joking. There was nothing worse than this car. This was the worst. It was not cool. It was, there was nothing good about it. And I had replaced the handle of the stick shift with like a cool one that looked kind of like a, like what you'd see if you were flying like an F-16, like something like that, like without buttons on it. But it, had, it was like a grip. And I, that, that was my attempt to make the car cooler. And I, I listed it in Auto Trader, which that's how you sold the used car back then, I guess. And a few people came to look at it. And then the, this one guy showed up and he seemed like, yeah, he was wearing a nice shirt and he had his, uh, had his mechanic with him. And they were at my house and they said, okay, uh, we'd like to take it for a test drive. I said, of course, sure. So I let the mechanic take it for a test drive. Uh, and, uh, he test drove it and I guess verified that it was in good working order. And they, they said, well, I, you know, when, um, and they asked me, they asked me these questions that in retrospect, it was so clear they were planning when and where they would steal it from. But to me at the time, as a like 18 year old kid, it, I didn't put two and two together. It just seems so obvious now. They're like, so, uh, when, uh, when are you in class? You know, when do you, when are you in, in class over there at uh, the university? I'm like, oh, well, uh, I have class at this time on this day. And I'm like, okay, okay. Uh, maybe we could uh, talk to you afterwards then. Wow. Like, yeah, okay, sure. Oh, my God. And, uh, and I, so I don't know if the car, it wasn't such a unique car for this time and place that it, there weren't other Honda Civic wagons. But, I mean... <laughs> You know, and the university campus that I was in that summer, because I was taking summer classes while I was at home, it's not like, it's not, it it wouldn't have been that hard to find the car on the, you know, on on the university, in the university parking lots. But still, that took some doing. Uh, But so one day I went out to class and came back from class and couldn't find my car. I'm like, oh, crap, where did I park, you know? I'm walking around, walking around like a moron. Where'd I park? Where'd I park my car? And I'd never forgotten where I parked my car my whole life. You know, like I never made that mistake. No, that's not your scene. No, like that's not how I roll at all. And, and, and so I'm walking around, walking around. Finally, it dawns on me that like, maybe that's why they were asking Mm. me when I was in class this week and all this, these other questions. But I couldn't believe it. Like, I couldn't really believe that, like, that doesn't really happen. Like, people don't really steal cars. Like, that's not a thing that happens That in, in like, a suburb, in a, uh, you know, like a South Florida suburb <laughs> in Boca, you know, like Boca. You don't get a Honda Civic wagon stolen in, in Boca. Maybe you get, a like, a, a high-end car or something in Miami. But, like, it's such a crappy Japanese car stolen from a college camp. It just seemed improbable, but it happened. Yeah. And, uh, and they, they, I think they valued it. I think I got about 200 bucks less for it from the insurance than I needed to buy the RX-7. So I was actually, it was fine. Oh, nice. So it all turned out. (laughs) This happy ending, got the RX-7 and, uh, took it up to 105 on the, on the, uh, Sawgrass Expressway, as we used to call it back then. Hot, hot diggity. Yeah. That little rotary engine was really spinning. Wankel. Um, I had a similar experience. It didn't happen to me, but I was there. My roommate, Chris, decided he was going to sell his Gibson acoustic. 
he had one of those early 90s Gibson acoustics, very fancy, but like small body, not all the way to like a parlor guitar, but like it was kind of a guitar that seemed like it had been made for women. Um, it was fancy and, and curvaceous, and <laughs> it just seemed like, like oh, this is Gib- Gibson's trying something out here that's that's it's beautiful and it's expensive and it's got inlays and stuff, but it's for smaller hands. Right. And so Chris is like, ah, this guitar never really worked for me. I'm going to sell it. And he did exactly what you're saying. He put an ad in the newspaper. Right. And got a couple of calls. And then somebody was like, you know, I'd like to come by and see the guitar. Oh, sure. Okay. So a guy shows up. I think he's with his girlfriend and he's like, a, you know, fast talker, but, but, but like a city slicker, a city slicker. Yeah. He's a likable guy. He's not a big guy. He's, uh, you know, he's in the five, the early fives. Okay. And, um, but he's, you know, he's, he's like well-dressed and he's, he's, um, he's, yeah, I liked him right away. He introduces himself as Luda. He says, I'm Luda. <laughs> and, uh, you know, let me try the guitar. And he picks it up. He plays it. He can play the guitar. Not, not well, but he, you know, strums it a little bit. All right. He goes, this is nice, you know. <laughs> And he sits and chats with us, and we're like, "Hey, Luda, he's not our—he's not our type of guy. Right. He's a little slick. He's wearing—he's wearing tassel loafers. <laughs> and I'm not gonna just—I'm not gonna like slag off all tassel loafers. But if you show up to buy a guitar and you're wearing tassel loafers, it's a little bit like right. We were Chris and I were both wearing some kind of cool boot. Mm-hmm. Anyway, he says, "Yeah, I'd like—I'd <laughs> like the guitar." I think I'll take it. We were like, cool. And, you know, I think Chris was asking 800 bucks or something for it. It wasn't a small deal. Right. The guy says, will you take a check? And Chris is like, well. And Luda says, you know, hey, I mean, you know, I'm good for it. I'm, you know, I'm I'm Luda. I'm I'm your pal Luda. And we were like, (laughs) yeah, all right. Chris is like, okay, Luda. Luda writes him a check. And then Luda takes the guitar. He's like, thanks, bros. You know, this has been great. Let's hang out sometime. I'll come see your band. You know, this type of thing. And then he and his girlfriend take off. And Chris is pretty psyched about about um, selling the guitar. And, uh, you know, he shows me the check. And uh, and the name on the check is um, Ludmilla Moosecheck. And I said... Luda Moosecheck. Um but Ludmilla is a is a lady's name. And Chris is like it is. And I'm like, <laughs> well yeah, I mean it's not a it's a lady's name from Central Europe, right. let's say. <clears throat> Ludmilla. And he's like, huh. <laughs> That's weird. Well, you know, Luda, Ludmilla. I was like, mm. Ludmilla, it's, it's lady. It's lady. It's not. Um, it's nobody says Luda. I thought Luda was a, Luda Moosecheck was a pretty cool name. Yeah, <laughs> but Ludmilla Moosecheck is in a different. That's different. And so Chris takes the check to the bank, and yeah, it's a stolen, stolen checkbook, stolen from a purse of a woman named Ludmilla. <laughs> and then we like, oh my goodness, we felt really. Uh, pretty scammed. Yeah. Because Luda was such a good dude. 
<laughs> right, right. And, and it was just like, oh, Luda's one of those sociopaths that. All right, is yeah. Super nice. I bet he's got like wives in different countries and stuff. His name's not even Luda. Right. And so then it was, it was Chris's 30th birthday, not very long after this. And so my friend Peter and I wrote him several songs for his birthday party where we, you know, we put a band together and we played, we played a bunch of songs for Chris that we'd written for him. One of them was called, he's got a perfect penis <laughs> because some girl that he'd been dating said like, I don't, Chris, I don't really like you, but you have a perfect penis. And we were like, well, you know what? That is the, that's a, that's a song starter <laughs> for sure. Uh, Chris's parents and, uh, I don't think even, well, definitely Chris's parents came to the party. And when we played the perfect penis song, the chorus of which was, he's got a perfect penis. <laughs> it was a big hit with the crowd, but his parents were definitely blanched, but they were awful people. So <laughs> who cares? Fuck them. Yeah. Right. But then, but then one of the other songs we wrote was Luda Moose Check. Ding, ding, down, ding, down. <laughs> sold you his, or you sold him his, your guitar. Woo! Uh, <laughs> they were all teasing songs. Luda Moose Check. I, I still feel like we could drag those songs out and they would have a second life. I, you never know. I mean, especially with a backstory like that. Yeah, although, uh, unless you're podcasting, who's got the time? <laughs> That's true. Right? People, even 140 characters now is too long for most people. Oh, way but too long. They, but they'll listen to a two-hour podcast. So, <laughs> I mean, I guess not many people listen to two-hour podcasts either. Uh. Our next sponsor is Squarespace, the easiest way to create a beautiful website, blog, or online store for you and your ideas. I've been using Squarespace for years and years. A good example of what you can do Go to baconmethod.com where I talk about how to make perfect bacon every time. That's just one example. So many people are using Squarespace for so many different things. Sites look professional and professionally designed regardless of your skill level. No coding required. Super easy to use. Spend your time on the thing that you're good at, which probably isn't like designing websites. If it is good for you, if not, and you're like most of us, like me, and you just want to go and get that thing out there, get that thing that you make or that place that you want to go to put your music or talk about the thing that you're interested in. You don't want to sweat the details of how do I make a website? Let Squarespace do it for you. It starts at only eight bucks a month and you get a free domain. If you sign up for a year, which you should, Start your free trial site, no credit card, none of that nonsense. Just go to squarespace.com slash roadwork and use the offer code roadwork and you'll get 10% off your first purchase. It's a great way to show support for this show. It's a great way to get started putting something that you've made out there in the world. Squarespace.com slash roadwork. Well, I have, uh, I have a second reason that I wanted to bring up your story on this show. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. The first being, I was glad you got your stuff. The second reason is, and this is something that of all the things that stuck with me from that episode and really a lot of episodes uh, that I've listened to you telling stories on, the one part of that whole story that really, I don't know what, I don't really even know how to express it, but the part that stayed with me, I guess, or the part that has made me think the most is how you were you were talking to your passport 
And you were saying, find me. Mm -hmm. And it did. That's interesting because there's a few different ways to sort of explain that. And one of them is the way that I'm the most comfortable using or saying doing, which is it would have found its way back to you either way, because the things that happened had nothing to do with you. They had to do with uh, a Japanese police officer. They had to do with rent, you know, all of these other things that, you were not involved in those and your participation in them that was nil. Essentially, these things were just happening the way that a lot of other things are happening before, after, and, and, you know, right now. And your, so your sending of that out into the world was neither here nor there. That's the scientific explanation that things right. happen. Right. Things happen, but not for a reason. Not for a reason, and you had no effect on it. And you, because plenty of people wish for things all the time, and they don't happen. But it is like Halloween time, and uh, the the mind thinks about other alternatives in Halloween. And what if that did do something? Like, what if that's somehow, because you weren't, you weren't, here's, and here's the interesting part of it. The reason why I even give this any credibility now is because it's not like you were saying, uh, bring this back to me or I, I universe, I command you to return my passport or, uh, or, or you were, you were speaking to the passport. You were saying, find, find me, you passport, living, living document, right? Living thing, thing with a, with a, a spirit, find me, you find me. And the way that you said it and all of that, like, am I getting it right? Is that, is that, is that the intent that was there? That's interesting and not, I think what most people would do and maybe there's something to that that's fascinating to me do you do you believe in that obviously you believe in that kind of thing <laughs> or were you just really just reaching uh a, a point of frustration and you had no, nothing else to put your energy into i mean because that part really jumped out at me out of the whole story that was my takeaway well i do believe in a in a magical world and that isn't to say <clears throat> a, a world where a passport can somehow cause itself to be returned to its rightful owner. Uh, no, that it would return itself to its return rightful. itself. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, as a child, I believed in magic and it wasn't that I was taught it. And I didn't believe in magic like, oh, that card trick, he really must be magic. I believed in, well, let's call it animism. I, no, because I didn't have a clear, I mean, there, we went to church because my mom was raised a Methodist and she believed that the Methodist hymns were important for people to hear. And she also wanted to do a good job as a single mom 
And one of the things that she thought to do was take us to church. She was not herself religious. She believed still and believed then that UFOs intervened in evolution and made human beings out of the component parts of whatever sort of monkeys and <laughs> whatever, whatever they could else, find, whatever evolved to a certain point in in the world, then UFOs came and were like, let's fuck with this, this a little bit and right. made humans out of it. So she is an evolutionist, but she also believes in intervention. And that's partly because she was a dog breeder, maybe. And she's like, I don't know if dogs, you know, dogs left alone all look the same. They look like those weird yellow prairie dogs. Mm -hmm. But if you get in there and you fuck with them, then dogs have all this diversity. And she just felt like UFOs. That was one clear thing that they were doing here. But she also likes Methodist hymns. So she took us to church. But other than that, I didn't, uh, but she didn't allow any church thinking to get inside of our heads. So I practiced animism, which is, I think, a natural religion that just sort of comes up in you. You think the trees have a spirit. You think that everything is kind of watching you and also singing to you. And, you know, the dirt is alive. And that was, I don't, I, I, it's not like I took comfort from it or, or that it scared me. It just was sort of my practice. I spent a lot of time in the woods as a kid and, and alone in the woods. And what do you do if you're alone in the woods except talk to the trees? Right. Um, and so as I grew older and resisted the intrusion of any sort of religion, including like theosophy or whatever, whatever presented itself as like, well, here is a reason to approach. And I was just like, hmm, I consider you for a while and read your founding documents. And I spend some time with your people and it's like, no, thank you. But I still talk to the trees and don't ascribe anything to it. I would not advise it to anybody. If you don't already talk to trees, <laughs> I'm not sure if you can suspend disbelief long enough to like go out in the woods and try it. Like, you know what? I'm going to, I heard that podcast the other day. I think I'm going to go out and start just get myself alone in a glade <laughs> and just talk to the tree. I mean, it's a thing that you either, either do. I don't know. Maybe if you, if you've never talked to the trees, by all means, go try it out and maybe you will you will re- receive as i do great sense of of uh, communion i am not embarrassed to say to you dan that i routinely hug trees like in, uh, in uh, like around your property or you go to the to the woods to go and do it uh, there are only a couple of trees on my property that have enough uh, depth of character. Yeah. Oh, like the to, ones you really get along with. Well, and the what? Yeah, the ones that have earned the status <laughs> of like. I mean, there are a lot. I am gentle with all trees <laughs> for sure. Yeah, I mean you. You've got to uh, be. You know, and I'm gentle with all plants that I can be. But I. But there are some trees that are worthy of of you know of like conversation and there are only two let's say three trees on my property that 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 have that 
depth. And one of them I feel is a kind of a callow tree, but still old and interesting. One of them is like, is is pretty old and, and crotchety. And then there's one that just is a, is a good pal. But, you know, like if you're out in the forest and you encounter a tree that is, that that's really been watching over that portion of the world. Right. And sort of is a steward of that, you know, of that quarter mile. Yeah. You stop and pay some respects and like put your hands on it. And, and, uh, and then if it, if it moves you, if you're inspired, then I, I think, I think embrace it. And it, and it, it feels it absolutely. And it, and it's happy for it in its tree way. But so that is the foundation, I think of, of a worldview that allows me, and all of this is, you know, within, within a rubric of complete belief in science and belief that I, I am also a nonsense person, (laughs) (laughs) but there are, you know, there are things that, for instance, like passport, find your way back to me. Right. Um, yeah, I say that because I have this, when it, when that passport was gone, I had a, a yearning for it that could only be described as um, uh, the, you know that I was separated from something that I had cared for right and that had rewarded me for that care mm-hmm. with a lot of pleasure we'd been through a lot together and you know, and it was a mute, it was a symbiotic, a mutual relationship. I had, I had protected it. I was its guardian. And so you see it though. It sounds like as it's, as an independent thing, like it, it almost like a, a child in a way. Well, or a familiar. Yeah. Yeah. Right? Like, like in the sense that if I had a little dragon, right. Yeah. That's that sat <laughs> on my shoulder, that dragon you know, it's a, it's a symbiosis. It's not, um, it's not that I'm caring for it. It's that we care for each other and the passport, it often goes away, right? Some border guard takes it and goes into another room. Some (laughs) hotelier in Bulgaria (laughs) takes it and keeps it while I'm in, while I'm staying in the hotel. (laughs) And if I stay in the hotel four days, I don't see that passport. I don't know what's happening to it. But it is tied to me. It is my identity document. And when I leave, the form, the formal, like sealing of the deal of that hotel stay in Bulgaria. Because in in Bulgaria, if you are a hotelier, you are responsible, essentially, for spying on the people who are in your hotel. <laughs> you take their passport, and you are now responsible. You are there emissary their agent of lodging and you write down all their information and you fill out several forms and you submit them to various agencies and if you don't you're you know you are negligent and so if you're in bulgaria you're monitored there's no point at which you're not accounted for and i was 
super, and there are places in the world where I'm super anxious to see my passport go away. Some, you know, somebody says, Pesaporta, and you hand it over and they like disappear and you're like, oh, fuck. <laughs> now what the fuck? So that, that bond <laughs> is, is pretty strong. And there, you know, there are several stamps. I'm, in, I'm a little ashamed to say this. There are several stamps where the the passport agent in whatever Chile or wherever didn't take his job as seriously as I would have liked. As far as like and, how how well he stamped it, yeah, and how well he was maintaining his ink pad, and you know, like that. Obviously, he did not feel like an artisanal passport stamper. <laughs> he felt like a. a, a city employee or a government employee that just is waiting for the five o'clock. And so they stamp your passport and smears or he, he he's not wetting his pad. And so it's very faint. And so there are a couple of stamps in my passport where it was not, you, you could barely read the date. And I knew that five years, 10 years down the road, I wouldn't, that would have faded to non-existence and I wouldn't be able to read it. Mm. And so in my hotel at the, at the end of the night, I disassembled a ballpoint pen and took the, and matched the ink. And I'm very, 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 you know, there are, I will, I will go through a stoplight in the middle of the night because come on. Yeah. That's just a suggestion, but I do not, feel good about tampering with a passport also i don't drive in the hov lane even if it's an empty highway because there are some things that are like yes we have agreed even if you don't think the hov lane is like a good idea or even if you're like if you feel like boo still you don't go in it because that's that's something that we've agreed is for high occupancy vehicles Stoplight is a suggestion. The high occupancy vehicle lane is an agreed upon premise. And don't tamper with your passport is like, that's a big deal. Yeah, that's a big so, one. So I would take a little pin and my little, uh, my ballpoint pen ink that I had mixed with some water. And I just went in and just sort of watercolored the date a little bit darker so that I would remember so that it looked right, looked like a passport stamp, but I would remember the, the date. So the, anyway, I've spent a lot of time with this document, 10 years, and a lot of nights sitting in places where the only thing to read is my own passport. Mm-hmm. Right? There's nothing else. I'm just in a little shabby shithole, and there's nothing else to do, not even a Gideon's Bible. So... You know, I've poured over this thing. And in fact, really bizarrely to me, when I was in Djibouti earlier this year, for whatever reason, maybe I had a premonition, but I sat down and I entered every passport in my, every stamp in my passport, I entered in the data contained on that stamp into a document on my phone. Oh, wow. In the notes. So I was like, Here's the date. Here's the other date. And, you know, they're randomly arranged in the passport. So I arranged them by date. All of the in, in and out stamps 
of different countries and so forth. I don't know why I did that, frankly. It's a little crazy, but I was, but I was in some military barracks in Djibouti and it was late at night. I couldn't sleep. All by way of saying, yes, I do communicate sometimes with things at a distance from me. But the problem is that I had, I lost another passport in my life and I have been communicating with it for decades and it has still not found its way back to me. And I think part of the problem is I didn't start talking to it soon enough, soon enough, right? By the time that you, it occurred to you to begin to engage with it, it, the, uh, the window had closed. Yeah, because I think at the time I was so devastated. I was just like, oh, why did you leave me? What did I do? And I felt a little bit like that, that this time, too. Do you like, think that the passport was maybe just almost like just testing you or punishing you? Like, you know, like yeah. you, you, you went out to the bar uh, and stayed out too late a few too many times. So your, your old lady makes you sleep on the sofa or something like you were in the doghouse for a little I mean, while with uh, with your passport? I feel like the first passport might have been on a little bit of a rumspringer. <laughs> right? Like, let's see what it's like for me right. to just go on my own. Yeah. Can you do it? Because you are being a drunk, irresponsible slob. Right. I want to see, you know, I've, I've been all over. I have, I have fond memories of, of all these times that I went through a small window in a passport office and, and was on my own. I mean, at one point in Morocco, I spent a week at the Algerian embassy. That was a fun time. You didn't even see me for a week. Like I'm my own guy. And then he rumspringed his way right into like, I don't know where who throws away a passport, you know? I, and I just, I feel like somebody found this thing. One thing that everybody should know is if you put a passport in any U.S. mailbox. Yeah, just drop it in the mailbox. Then it will at least go, I don't know where, somewhere does to it, the government. Does it bother you, John, that there is the, there is the potential that someone still has it, that it, it mm-hmm. wasn't thrown away, mm-hmm. but that it's actually being kept like a prisoner somewhere? It doesn't bother me because I feel like that is the one chance I have. Oh, of it coming back still. (laughs) That someone one day will open up a book where this passport has been used as a bookmark. Right. Or they will be digging through their box of college memorabilia and they'll pull this thing out and be like, oh yeah. I mean, I have have a collection of so many driver's licenses that I have found over the years. Uh, Other people's identity cards that I found that I just took home and put in a shoebox. I'm not really compelled to go look up all those people and send them their, their like Boeing ID card from 1994. Right. But maybe one day I'll be bored enough that I'm like, you know what? I'm going to go return all these driver's licenses. Uh, maybe it'll be a, a welcome surprise. Somebody will be in late middle age and all of a sudden they'll have their driver's license from when they were a kid. But I do, you know, so that possibility that someone who went to the University of Idaho in the late 80s has it in there. And, you know, that person would not be that different in age from me. So they might even be, they might even know about me. They might discover me through 
other means. And right. you're like, that guy? I How do I know that name? Oh, I have that guy's passport. And like, you know, it's it, it's a, a little bit like that scene in Amelie where she discovers the little shoot the little cigar box full of old toys, and sneaks it into the phone bo- phone booth for the guy, and he's just like, "What the fuck <laughs> is going on in the world?" Right? Uh, and I and I'm just I still hold out hope for that. So, so because if I were if that passport were returned to me, there is something. There is something where I would truly be restored to wholeness. There aren't many things that are missing. My tooth is missing, and I and I hope one day to be restored to wholeness in that regard. And my passport is missing, and you know my dad is dead, but I can't do anything about that. Right. Um. And and really, that doesn't feel like a, like a wholeness issue as much as it's just like uh life is bullshit yeah we would like to thank wealthfront it makes it easy for anyone to get access to world-class long-term investment management wealthfront is an online automated service that invests your money for you the same way that an investment advisor would do it but way 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 cheaper an investment advisor they're going to take anywhere from one to three percent of what you've got under their management And then they have all these little hidden fees, these transaction fees for any changes you make. These things add up quickly. They're going to eat into your nest egg. Well, you know what? You've got a long-term goal. You've got a place you want to be. You've got a time you want to retire. You've got money that you want to save and you want to invest it. That's the best way to do it. Well, Wealthfront does this in the most intelligent, automated way possible. You can learn more by going to wealthfront.com slash five by five. And they have a special thing there for you guys. Wealthfront.com slash five by five. They're going to manage your first $15,000 entirely free of charge for life. So in addition to never paying commissions or any hidden fees, you also won't pay any management fees on your first 15K if you go to Wealthfront.com slash five by five. Thanks very much to them for supporting this program. And for compliance purposes, I have to tell you that Wealthfront Inc., is an SEC-registered investment advisor brokerage services offered through Wealthfront Brokerage Corporation, member FINRA and SIPC. This is not a solicitation of buy or sell securities, never. Investing in securities involves risks, and there is a possibility that you will lose money. Past performance is no guarantee of future results. Please visit Wealthfront.com to read the full disclosure. Um, so, yeah. So I'm still, I, I've been sending out, you know, like, Little sonar things <laughs> yeah. uh, for a long, long time. Hold out hope. Well, I just, I think this is the time of year when, if something is going to happen, this is when you've got your best chances. You know, the window around October thirty first is that's a pretty big window. Do you feel like there are? I mean, it sounds to me like you feel like there are headless horsemen. Do you feel like they're headless horse? I feel like, I mean, when I was I, listening to you talk about the forests and the trees and all of that uh, uh, animism, I totally, like, I was so on board with that for the majority of my life, especially as a kid. Like, as a kid, it was, like, every everything, everything was 
not necessarily sentient per se, but there was, you know, there were vibes. Mm -hmm. Vibes were very much a real thing. And as I remember, as I got older, I found that I had, uh, uh, sort of the, like I could get a very, very strong feeling about a person, uh, just by, you know, instantaneously meeting that person. I, it's not like I could tell you like, this is the kind of car they drive and this is their favorite color and you know nothing like that. But I would get a very, very clear feeling about a person. And it was, it, I mean, it's, it's hard, it's hard to kind of put that aside when you get a really strong vibe or feeling about somebody, you know what I'm talking about? And there are people who I think are doing this. And, and it was the kind of thing that like in, in sales or in business or in these other things that I did, like I could put that to very, very, very good use. And I'm not going to say like I was never wrong, but getting, being able to get that kind of clear read on somebody um, or, or know if somebody is being truthful or not just by gut feeling, you know, why, why, how, how did I, how do I do that? Or how did I do that? And where, where does that thing come from? And I don't really know. I don't, I don't know if it's like a, if you want to use the word like a psychic thing. It's your female intuition. It's my, yeah, it's my, it's my womanly uh, intuition. But, you know, like, okay, well, if you, if you want to get really weird, since we're talking about hugging trees, there is, uh, there is a thing where if, um, I, I was a very, what I would, what I would call short of like moving to a Buddhist monastery, but as close as you could get to wanting to do that without actually doing it. Wow. Yeah. I, I was, I didn't know that. Yeah. I was like really serious practicing Buddhist for many years. Hmm. And like, if things had been different and I was like, single instead of married, like, yeah, I would have been in the monastery, like meditating all day, every day. And did your wife, did your wife not practice Buddhism? No, no. <laughs> and, uh, and, and I found, you know, I discovered it. I found it much later because, and this is a, you know, I'll, I'll condense the story down, but I was like the anxiety and things that we've talked about were like ruling my life. And the way that I kind of found my way out of it was through like, a really strong, great Buddhist meditation practice. And for the people who are curious, uh, it's uh, the Vipassana style or what's also called insight meditation, which is part of Theravada Buddhism, uh, which is very, very different in as much as Buddhisms can be different from what you, what most people think of as Buddhism, which is, uh, is like Zen Buddhism, which I know almost nothing about. And it's very, very different from Tibetan Buddhism, which is if if you like look at like what's in movies and stuff, that's almost always like Tibetan Buddhism with the monks with the strange instruments going and the really cool like chanting and stuff. Like that's usually like Tibetan Buddhism. The prayer flags. Yeah, yeah. And I love I love that stuff. I know very, very little about it. But in these these different uh you know, like one of the, I've read, I've read about it constantly. I meditate, I had like a really great meditation practice. And I remember that I had this opportunity to, there's a famous, uh, a famous 
I mean, I guess it's, as far as like meditation centers go, it's famous. Uh, but there's one in, in Redwood City up near San Francisco called Insight Meditation Center. And they had this thing where like people who didn't have, and of course we're talking about like Orlando, Florida, didn't have a lot of Theravada Buddhist meditation centers you could go to. So IMC, I guess in realizing this, they kind of opened this up and said, you know, we're going to like work with remote people, you know? And so for the first time, I was getting to talk to like a really, really experienced, super knowledgeable meditation teacher. And, uh, and I got to talk to her like by phone and we could do this email correspondence thing for a little while. And so I was talking to her on the phone and I was telling her about these like experiences that I had through this meditation. And at the time, like I had, I had almost like, if you think about it very much kind of like this, this life that was sort of monastic in the sense of like, I worked from home. I didn't really have like a commute. I didn't interact with a lot of people except through like I am while I'm sitting there writing code during the day. I had this, you know, so it was like, I had this before kids. Uh, I had this interesting kind of meditative day all day, every day for the most part. And so the meditation practice that I had was like really strong and really reinforced through mindfulness. I was practicing like throughout the rest of the day. It was a very interesting like time in my life when I look back on it. But one of the things that, uh, that I remember is, you know, like that I was, so there are these different stages of meditation. They're called jhanas and there's like a first, second, third, and fourth jhana. And it takes many years, you know, to like be able to reach these different stages of jhana, which are this sort of very deep states of concentration that are like really interesting. And the one thing that I always appealed to me about Buddhism was that there isn't really, there isn't a spiritual component to it in the way that there's a spiritual component it to other religions in that you don't actually really have to believe in something. I mean, yes, there are aspects of faith to Buddhism, but it's not like, like to, to be a good Christian, there's certain things that you have to believe in. To be a good Jew, there's certain things you have to believe in, and that might include believing in God. Like, otherwise, the religion doesn't make much sense. If you don't believe in God, you're probably not the best Jew out there, um, at, at least according to my grandparents. But Are you kidding? All the best Jews don't believe in God. Well, maybe that's true. Maybe that you're on to something. But <laughs> for me, it was, you know, there— what I liked about it was that so much of the, uh, and many people are like, well, Buddhism is a philosophy. It's not a religion. Trust me, it's a religion and there is a huge component of faith in it, but there's part of it where, you know, a lot of it is just based on being mindful and observing. And, uh, and, and, and yet at the same time, there are these incredibly intense, what I would describe as mystical, and for sure magical and for sure spiritual experiences that you get in these very, very, very deep states of concentration. The kind that if you sit for 90 minutes, 60 to 90 minutes a day, seven days a week for years, you might get lucky to experience. <laughs> and it's not like people think it's like a transcendental meditation. That's the other thing that people like think about. Uh, but it's it's not that either. It's very, you know, very different. But at some point, you know, like like parts of when you reach these deep jhanas, like it, for all intents and purposes, it seems that you stop breathing. 
Mm-hmm. And yeah, you stop breathing. And it's not like you try to stop breathing. You just realize that you're not breathing, but you don't feel out of breath. And it's, it's very confusing. And so like I'm talking to the person at IMC about this and she's like, oh, she's like, you, you, you experience that? I'm like, yeah. And it really freaked me out. She's like, well, first of all, like, don't be scared of that. She's like, second of all, you did this in your house. I'm like, yeah. She's like, usually people only get that on these like extended retreats when they go on retreats and they're not speaking to other humans for months at a time. I'm like, well, that's pretty cool. I guess she's like, yeah. And I started telling her about these other experiences that I was having. And this is where it gets weird. So this is where I'm going to, you know, lose some of my uh, listeners, but, (laughs) uh, there is a thing where if you are doing this kind of practice long enough, where it, it almost seems, and I'm going to, I'll, I'll qualify what I mean by this after I say it, where you can kind of read people's minds. Mm-hmm. And this is a weird thing because first of all, I know you can't read anybody's mind. Like that doesn't happen. You can't read people's minds. I know that I'm not dumb, but also I could read people's minds mm-hmm. and it, not like I thought it would be like an, in TV where like Sookie can walk around and hear the other people's mind, like hear their thoughts. Like I forgot the, I left this iron on today or whatever, you know, like that, that, not that kind of reading mind, but you could almost sort of feel, this is so weird. You could almost feel the, the thought process that the other person was having. And so uh, at first I wrote this off as that gut instinct that I was describing before. I just sort of, I was more in touch with it because I was more in touch with my own thoughts. And then I said, well, maybe I'm just being more observant. I'm picking up on things like body language because I'm, 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 in this deeper state of concentration, even throughout the day and mindfulness, and I'm aware of more things, I'm paying attention to more things, I'm less distracted by all these errant thoughts and the constant narration voice in my mind is finally quiet. So I'm just able to pick up on these other little details and subtle cues and little hints. And and so I'm not sure what it was, but it, it definitely, it, it happened and it happened a lot. Like, I would. Uh, I remember one thing in particular. I was. Uh, I was uh, doing like a uh, kind of a negotiation in a business situation with somebody, and we were sitting at at lunch together. And I could just kind of tell like what he wanted out of the deal in very concrete terms. And I just spelled it out for him, and he's like, "That's exactly what I was thinking." Now maybe that was just my business acumen coming into play, but you know who knows? Like I, it was just very weird. And like I'd be sitting there, and I'd say, "Oh, uh, like." Uh, Rick is about to call me mm-hmm. and the phone would ring moments Whoa. later like that. And it didn't just happen once or twice. Like it happened all the time. I could sit there and I would say, Oh, such and such a person is, is thinking about right now. They're writing an email right now. And in two or three minutes later, the email would come in like this happened so much that mm-hmm. I started really plugged in. I, and I like, was I just crazy at the time? Was I imagining it? Sure, maybe. But it was just a very weird kind of a thing. And that kind of changed my perspective on all the tree-hugging stuff you're talking about. That, Like, I'm very open-minded to that, even though it doesn't fit into my worldview anymore in any sense or stretch of the imagination. And yet, <laughs> like, this stuff happened. So I, I don't know. It's weird, but I can't do it anymore because I don't, I don't sit for 60 minutes every morning anymore. 
Why did you stop sitting for 60 minutes every morning? Uh, I had kids and they completely changed everything. So, you know, I'm sure I could still make time for it. Um, but like having kids and being on their schedules and also like I wasn't running a business. I was just like showing up for even though I worked remotely, like I was showing up for work. It just my life was really designed where I had these big pockets of uninterrupted time uh, and, and, and tremendous focus. And like I wasn't drinking coffee. I was drinking green tea. I was. Yeah. It was a very oh different. Oh my god! I know. You said insufferable. That's all very interesting, and and you know the whatever you attach to meditation, I guess. Yeah, I really do believe in it. I don't practice it at all, but uh, you uh, would but, be and, you would be terrifying if you could run around reading people's minds like that. That's well, too much I, power for one man. I feel like that is very real in the sense that, um, well, uh, people ask me all the time um, if I speak in another language or why I didn't spend more time learning different languages because uh, because I love to travel and have been a lot of places. And I've always said, you know, I uh, when I first was traveling, I really felt I really felt at a disadvantage that I didn't speak other languages. But then as time wore on, I realized that, that you don't need to speak other languages, that language itself is kind of a problem. Language is a problem in communicating most things. It's insufficient. And, um, and we rely on it too much. That's the problem. Language is actually great and uh, and obviously it's my favorite thing in the world language is my primary occupation and avocation but we we depend on it to the exclusion of other forms of communication which are in some ways better and it's why it's why i believe that american sign language is i, I believe the sort of the hype that deaf people have about American sign language where they just feel like watching, hearing people talk to each other, their faces have such a flat affect that, that half of what could possibly be communicated is being lost. And if you watch two deaf people talking, their faces are so animated. They are, they're speaking at a much more highly communicated, level more connected in some way yeah and so when i travel and don't share a language with somebody and it's clear that we don't share any language like it, the worst situation is if both of you speak a little french and this is what happens in a lot of arab countries they speak a little french you speak a little french and so you're just spending all your time and all your energy trying to think of the French word for goat. And, <laughs> and it just is a, it's just wasted energy because when you encounter someone with whom you share nothing, you can't even really, I mean, you know, most people in, in Arab countries, no taxi and stuff like that, but you know, in, in communicating in Asia where there's just no, I mean, I guess taxi's universal now, but, but 
I find that when you both agree, okay, we have no common language whatsoever, then the conversation gets really animated because you have things you need to say to each other. And so it becomes a question of like, who can, who can do a better dance? And, and then you're really having a human interaction. So many of those conversations end with both people hugging. And part of that hugging is relief at having communicated what you were trying to communicate. But, but a lot of that hugging is amazement at how much you were able to communicate. Like you, you, look, at, you look at people after a 20-minute long conversation with no language involved and you go like, holy shit, we really got all the way to there and you both you know, you both realize it. Like, wow! You you hug one another out of a, out of like a, hu- a human feeling. So, so I think that your mind reading and your uh, you know that feeling of connectedness, you're just getting to a place where you can, where language is starting to recede in importance. Right, right. Where that's not the thing that you're paying the most attention to is not the words that they're saying, but whatever else is yeah. conjured it's, from the other person. It's more than reading body language. It's like, it's truly appraising those situations and those other people. And a lot of it, your mind is just doing, it's filling it in like, well, what does this person want? Why are they here? What could they want? And that's the big part of communicating with the language is you're looking at the person and you're like, they're trying to tell me something. What could they possibly be trying to tell me? Let's assume, for instance, that it has nothing to do with the International Space Station. Right? We can eliminate that. I'm standing in a public square in Zagora, Morocco, and this person is trying to say something to me and it has nothing to do with the space station, for instance. It probably has nothing to do with classic American muscle cars. <laughs> it probably has nothing to do with like how to reupholster an Ames chair. So what is it? And then you're, you know, then you're in a in a in a fantastic place because you are you have to be here now. Um and so I I, I really think that that that's tremendous. But also when I was on my long walk across Europe, I was forced to meditate because everything I was doing was practicing this sort of like I'm doing this methodical physical activity and I am trying to empty my mind because my mind is full of garbage. And the more that I realized that I could not think through all this garbage, I could never think it through. I always came back to the to where I started and I was no better off that what I was just trying to do, this is months in, you know, I'm just like, I just have to rid my mind of garbage. Yeah. Out, out, damn garbage. How did you do out. that? Like, how did you do that? I would walk and then I would find myself thinking, about garbage and I would go fuck out done and then I would be quiet for a while and then I would not understand how I was back thinking about that fucking one time that some guy 
you know, stepped on my shoe. Mm-hmm. It's like, what is that doing for me? Out. And then I'd walk and I'd be quiet. And then all of a sudden I would find myself halfway through a conversation with some girl in my head that right. was not happening. I was just having it on my own. And it's like, that isn't real. And it's not helping me either out. And so day after day of just saying quiet, just quiet, just quiet. And it wasn't that I was doing any kind of Buddhist practice. I wasn't even aware that that was, that there was any commonality between what I was doing and, and meditation. I just was as a self-preservation exercise, trying to stop the, the, uh, babble, not babble, like injurious babble. Right. And eventually I could, I could walk for, a long time and just hear the wind. And, um, and then all of a sudden I could start, I, I started to be able to smell more clearly than I had ever been able to smell. You know, like I would, no, I totally I would, know what you mean. I would, somebody would walk across my path. I could, I'd see them up ahead, walk across my path from one field to the other, you know, and as I approached that point, five minutes later, I could smell them having passed. <laughs> and I was smelling things, you know, just at this like, whoa, whoa, what a, whoa, where is that? You know, I was like, it was, uh, I was attuned to, to something. And, and, you know, I was often in places where there was no overhead jet traffic for several days where it just wasn't on jet traffic patterns. And when I would start to arrive in a place where you could hear jets at 30,000 feet, hmm. it stood out right. as noisy and distracting. And like, how do we live like this? And that jets at 30,000 feet, it's not even a thing that any of us would normally perceive now because we just hear it all the time. But I was conscious of it and conscious of what the birds were doing and so forth. And, and what happened was I, I, I did get, I did get so that I could, I could be just whole for, for a little while. Yeah. And when I talked about that, after I got back, you know, a lot of my rock and roll friends just scoffed. Right. They were like, Oh, Oh, did you have animal instincts? Oh, <laughs> and I was like, well, yeah, I fucking did. Actually, you try walking 60 miles right. in a day. They're like, were you like who fucking, you know, Kung Fu? <laughs> I was like, yeah, I was. Yeah. I could walk across the rice paper. Right. But, uh, but then I would talk to people who had been in long meditations. I have a very good friend who did a 10 day silent retreat right. in um, Nepal. And, you know, she described that transition, that, that passage from like, I am really uncomfortable. Now I'm really mad. Mm-hmm. I am really mad at everybody. I'm especially mad at these other people who are sitting right next to me. Yeah. Because what the fuck is her problem? <laughs> Everybody's sitting there quiet. <laughs> right. You know? I fucking hate this girl. Right. She is so, oh, she's so noisy the way her nose whistles or whatever. And then you're like really mad and just crazy and like 
replaying all these scenarios and and I'm like, yes, 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 yes. I know exactly what that is. That's so weird. I know what that is. I thought I was all alone. And then this like passageway to like quiet where I was like, whoa, yes, yes. And then she started talking about this thing that you're talking about, something else where you're like, boom. And she said after at a 10-day retreat, like on the ninth day, something clicked. Right. She didn't feel that she wasn't breathing anymore. But like something clicked. She went over some Right. No, I know I know what I know what you're talking about for sure. Well, see, and the thing is I don't because I never that never happened. I don't know what that is. Because I was always moving and so always interacting with something. Right. I always had to come to a crossroad and decide. And so I was never able to just be completely quiet. But there is but, I mean there is a thing all about walking meditation. It's different from the kind of walking meditation you were doing, but don't, and I don't, I'm not saying you are, but like, don't shortchange yourself and the depth of the experience you were having because in, in a lot of ways, like that's, that's a real thing you were onto, you know, Mm -hmm. that's the real deal. Well, and if I had had any guidance, if anybody had said to me in advance, well, see, but that's what makes it, I think even more important is like you had no guidance, you know, and yet you were still, having this kind of experience. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That, and that's why, that's why Buddhism went from being, because I think for most of my life, I was like, oh, really, person who lives in California, you are now a Buddhist? <laughs> right. Oh, really? Um, but, uh, and, you know, and I read the, uh, the, like, the vagaries of human experience. Uh, like, I, you know, have always practiced a kind of comparative religion. But but this was an example of a thing where I stumbled on something natural and native to yeah. to humans, thinking humans. Right. That is now called Buddhism and I or you know, or has been I'm sorry, has been called Buddhism for right. thousands of years. Right. But also is in is akin to prayer and in the family of prayer and monastic life. And I had a firsthand glimpse of what that is and why that is such an important part of religious practice. And it was independent of any doctrine. And so I was like, wow, this is really powerful stuff. And it's why. And the fact that it happens within the framework of different religions doesn't invalidate it. It's. it's fantastic if you can arrive there. And I think true, probably true monks of any, uh, you know, of of any diocese arrive at a place where they are, where they transcend even their own religion. Right. And just are sort of like on the ladder. Yeah. And somewhere up, they're somewhere up the ladder and they're just like, Oh, you know, I'm, You know, they hear the wind, in other words. Right. Um, and I admire that you were able to do that. Well, it, it it was the only thing that saved me from, you know, like, really, let's say, like, I was diagnosed with, like, generalized anxiety disorder, and I was having all kinds of, like, health issues and digestive stuff and, like, heart palps, and I was totally screwed up. And this was kind of my, my way out, you know, and it's still like there, there were, 
the changes, and I'm sure this is true for you, it sounds like, but like the changes you go through in something like that, like you cross a point of, and it's not a bad point of no return, but it's like you cross a point of no return where you're like, I, you know, I've never like dropped acid or anything like that, but you hear people who have done that kind of thing talk about somewhat like mystical experiences. I remember the first time I heard someone talk about it was in high school and there was this girl and she's like, she's like, yeah, you just, you know, like I don't see the world as the same place that I did before that experience, you know? And I think, I think there's lots of ways besides acid that you can have an experience like that, but like things really something like listening to you talk about how your friend described it as like something really clicked, like that definitely happened for me at that point. And it was like my, my view of the world was fundamentally changed, you know, while I was sitting on this uh, purple cushion on the floor of my like second bedroom in my house in Oviedo, Florida, like of all the places you would think you could have kind of a life changing spiritual experience. That wasn't where I would have guessed, but that's where it happened. Mm. Uh, Well, you know, I have uh, experimented with all the hallucinogens. <laughs> and some of them, you know, uh, 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 quite a significant amount of experimentation. Well, you had to be sure. Well, and also, you know, there was <laughs> just like lots of work to be done in that department. Right. And my experience of it, because I was also reading a lot of material about higher levels of consciousness. It was the whole experience. I wasn't yeah. just taking acid and drinking beer. I was, I was, I was doing some, um, significant sort of exploration. I'm not a, not a, I wasn't anybody's acolyte, right? I was always, always doing this on my own, but I was reading all the, the prior material. And, and I had a very real sense that those drugs did allow you to glimpse for a short time what it was like if you had done the hard work and arrived there by meditation, right? fasting, pr- a, a, a lifetime of, of serious practice mm-hmm. of self-abnegation um, or whatever. I'm, right. and I, I, I use terms like that and then uh, the Buddhists all yell at me that it's not abnegating, <laughs> but like, but whatever, like, like the, the, um, the privation of, of monastic life uh, delivers you to those places through hard work and LSD and mescaline and, and mushrooms and even pot. Yeah. But like all the consciousness expanders, all the drugs that are psychoactive, you can actually get even, even nitrous oxide. You can get brief glimpses of the totality. You can get brief glimpses in, you know, behind the curtain to see like, and some drugs only get you to a place where you can see the ludicrousness, but others 
take you to seeing interconnectedness and then others take you to seeing like eternal long view truths and but you're only there for a second and you are absolutely definitely a tourist <laughs> and, and, and what you end up with is a lot of drug people drug explorers do not understand that they are tourists they get there and then they want to get back there and so they take the drug again and they think that they're while they're there that they are collecting stuff and putting it in a bag putting it in a magic bag of holding that they're going to take back to ground with them and they don't they you you cannot um, you cannot learn there because you didn't get there. You you went through a looking glass, and I I very strongly had a sense in those places like, oh shit, I do want to be here. Yeah. I would love to get here. Yeah. The path to here is winding and and so and it's so long. And involves so much work that I don't know if I will get here. I have a lot. I, I maybe doubt I will. But to come here like this, and like walk around heaven with a with a um, with an instamatic around my neck, trying to snap pictures, and say like, uh huh, uh huh, uh huh, yeah, 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 gonna take this back, gonna have this now. Hmm. It's like no, no, no. So, so see, I that's, became- that's it, it's fascinating though because so many cultures, whether it's Native American or, or or other cultures, have this as part of like you know you you need to become a man. So now you need to go on a spirit walk and you need to you know eat eat these mushrooms or whatever. And like this becomes like a rite of passage for so many, I guess you could call them tribal uh, ways of life or ways of living, right? That we've, we've sort of lost that. Absolutely. But that wasn't like now it's like, oh yeah, I know that one guy, like he's, you know, he's tried all this stuff. And you like you know a guy, or if you're in a community, you know a number of people who have done or do this kind of thing. But it, it used to be like a, a, a reverent and spiritual kind of thing, as opposed to like something you do on a Thursday night because you live in a small town. Well, yeah, and I think that that is how it should be practiced. And the problem is that that guy you know in town who's done all the drugs did the thing where he was like, "Yeah, man, I'm going to do the you know that's where I'm living." Right. <laughs> and that is bullshit, right? Because no tribal society, nobody ever goes into the spirit quest and just is like, you know what, man, I'm the spirit quest dude. From now on, I'm just living in the hot yurt and I am right, doing the right, fucking right. drugs. You know, no, it happens like at a time in your life and a, and you are guided by people. Yeah. And, you know, and, and, and I think there's some attempt by people again, largely in Southern California or Vancouver, Canada, who are really doing this like spirit quest business with um, with salvia, um, where they're 
where they are being guided through the experience and they are vomiting and vomiting in a bucket and uh and then like blowing their minds um and blowing their minds in like great ways or horrible ways but there but there's some there is a component of it that it that uh, where people are are trying to guide one another and that seems right but then i meet people and i know quite a few of them who have done it multiple multiple times and i think they prepare and they're they are conscious of it being a journey but like like yeah but but it isn't again a practice it's not it's something to use like i 100% advocate that everyone take a psychedelic drug and go somewhere either with close friends I, I would suggest with close friends that are also doing it and you you go you go on a on a spirit quest because you will not look at the world the same way again and I think that's important I think it's human and necessary if you want to see if you want to live a full life right if you don't if you, and it's scary it absolutely is and bad things can happen there but like yeah. bad things can happen everywhere <laughs> but the, but the rewards are are profound and and it, and i think it's a real i think it's a complement to to any practice of any kind and i and i would i would you know a christian practice or a or a buddhist one or an atheist one it's like atheists can can also benefit from seeing through the curtain but but i but i also think it should be very special and it should be exclusive and it should be exclusive to you. I don't. I mean, I think everybody should do it, but I think it should be. It shouldn't happen at a rave, you know. It should be like, which isn't to say that they're not. It's they're, those drugs aren't amazing at raves too. But but you should be you should be somewhere where you are able to see like the wind rippling through the grain, or the the ocean, or something that's that can that where your mind can have a little bit of freedom. And I think the city is also a valid place. It's just that what the city is going to show you is the ludicrousness of human enterprise. Hmm. Uh, and if that's what you're looking to see, absolutely <laughs> take some drugs in the city and walk around with your friends because you will look ridiculous to other people and you will see how ridiculous they, they look. Hmm. But if you, you know, if you go out to the coast or you sit in an open field and watch the wind or you are in the trees or something, you're going to go someplace that, that yeah, a part of you won't, won't come back from, but it's a, but it's a part of you that you did not need. Um, but you can't, you know, you can't stay there unless you are prepared to walk the whole distance. 